0: Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information go to Bestevershow.com. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello,
1: best ever listeners, and welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm your host for today, Paul Mueller, and we're back today with another best ever midweek news brief, where we will run through some of the week's top CRE headlines for you, then invite an expert in to discuss our top story before sending you off for your day, hopefully a little bit more informed. In today's episode, the self-storage outlook takes an unexpected turn, we get some potentially good news on triple net leases, and the data says rents are cooling, but not everywhere. First, we'll start in self-storage, where a recent report from Yardi Matrix predicts a surge in supply for 2024 and 2025, followed by a decline in later years, signaling a major shift in what's become an attractive asset class for investors. So let's look at 2024 and 2025, and I'm going to throw a bunch of numbers at you that we'll make sense of in just a minute. Both construction starts and the under-construction pipeline were up to close out 2023. As a result, the near-term forecast for deliveries has also increased, specifically by 109 and 12.5% for the next two years, respectively. For markets that opened before 2020, there are currently 60.1 million net rentable square feet under construction. Now, this represents an 8.3% increase quarter over quarter and an 11.3% increase year over year great numbers. However, that year-end growth in the under-construction pipeline was mostly driven by increased new development. And overall, construction completion times appear to be moderating, which is why, while forecast completions went up for 2024 and 25, for 2026 and beyond, predictions have been reduced. In general, Yardie now forecasts new supply growth to be around 2% of stock for 2026 and 27 and 1.5% of stock for 2028 and 29. For some context, the recent self-storage boom we've experienced has come in an environment in which new supply has exceeded 2.5% of stock annually since 2015. So Yardi doesn't expect that trend to continue beyond 2025. So it looks like the self-storage boom is set to peak in 2025. None of this is to say that self-storage is dead or dying. It's simply a case of dialing back projections that were based on pretty unprecedented growth trends. More than anything, these tempering growth expectations signal more of a leveling out than a cause for any kind of panic. Next, let's talk triple net leases. The latest market analysis from Chris Lemuto at Northmark includes some good news. First, average closing cap rates were lower in January. And while Lemuto says that 5 to 10 basis points of monthly volatility either way seems to be typical... If lower cap rates continue, it could mean growing valuations. He went on to say that back-to-back months of lower cap rates, something we haven't seen in a while, might be an indicator of an inflection point, so all eyes will be on February's data once they're available. Lamudo also noted that Crexy data showed triple net inventory dropping off for a second consecutive month in January. It's been at least 21 months since we've seen two consecutive months of falling inventory, and also that long since so much inventory has sold off. The average asking cap rate is still roughly where it's been, which might be due to expectations of rate cuts. Now, that's a forecasting debate that we can leave for another time and place. But at this point, some predict we won't see those interest rate cuts until June at the earliest. So while the current data on triple net leases still sends mixed messages, Lamuto did say that there seems to be, quote, cause for optimism, unquote. So we'll see what the data from February and beyond bring. And that brings us to our main story for today, which comes from the multifamily arena, where the data shows that rents are cooling, but not everywhere. There are 12 U.S. markets where Class C rents are falling at least 6% year over year, and the common denominator is supply. All 12 of those markets have supply expansion rates above the U.S. average. Florida has been a supply magnet because of its strong demand, and it has three markets, Fort Myers, Sarasota, and Daytona Beach seeing Class C rent cuts around 10 to 12 percent. Other Florida markets that don't crack the top 12 but still have high supply and the rent cuts to go along with it are Orlando, Jacksonville, and Tampa, which are seeing cuts of 4 to 5 percent. Other key markets that do make up the top 12 include the ultra-high-supplied big markets like Austin, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, Atlanta, and Raleigh-Durham, which are experiencing rent cuts of at least 6 percent. Myrtle Beach, Wilmington, North Carolina, Boise, and Colorado Springs are some of the smaller markets among the top 12. On the other side of the spectrum, Class C rents are growing the most in markets with lower new supply. Class C rent growth topped 5% in 18 of the nation's 150 largest metro areas, and nearly all of them have limited new apartment supply. Many of them are smaller to mid-sized markets like the Midland-Odessa market in Texas, Knoxville, Louisville, Kentucky, and Albany, New York. Cincinnati and Chicago, obviously much larger markets, both saw Class C rent growth near 4%, and of course, both ranked below the U.S. average for new supply. The interesting thing here is that apartment demand is not the issue in any of those 12 markets where rents are cooling due to new supply. They're all demand magnets that are still among the national leaders for net absorption. What's happening here is a phenomenon called filtering. Most new construction tends to be class A luxury because that's what pencils best because of the high cost of land, labor, materials, insurance, taxes, you name it. And in these markets where rents are cooling, it's that luxury class A new supply that's putting downward pressure on rents at all price points, even in the lowest price class C rentals. Joining me today to discuss this filtering phenomenon in a little more detail and to discuss this rent cooling trend at large is Jay Parsons. Jay is head of economics and industry principles at RealPage. As a rental housing economist, Jay is one of the leading voices in multifamily real estate. He's an author, speaker, and an expert in market trends and forecasts, rental housing policy issues, property management, and more. Jay, it's a pleasure to have you here, my friend. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Thanks for taking the time to join us today on The Best Ever Show. Jay, we're here today to talk about some data that you've come across recently. And I'd love for you to dive right into it and tell us what it is that you're seeing and how this is impacting affordability right now.
2: I think the biggest surprise that I've seen over the last year in the apartment market is the impact of all this supply. And going into this last year, my view was that because all this new luxury supply was higher rent, that it really would insulate these more moderately priced B and C assets But instead, what we're seeing is what academics call the filtering process that's happening much faster than I anticipate. Typically, these things take a number of years. We're seeing it much faster. And what that means is that as these new properties are being built, they're offering rent concessions and rent cuts and whatnot. And they're luring higher income renters out of the more moderately priced older Class B properties who can afford these. But now they're able, there's more supply out there, they can afford that. That opens up availability at the moderate class B standpoint, then they have more vacancy, they're cutting rents, that pulls in class C renters, and on down the line it goes. And so we've seen vacancy increase across the board, in turn, operators are cutting rents. But it's important to note that this is only happening in these very high supplied areas. It's not happening where supply isn't going, which is why we know this is really all about supply and not about any other issues that sometimes come up.
1: What are some of those markets, Jay, where you're seeing this the most?
2: Well, it's a lot of the sunbelt. So we're seeing this especially in places like Austin and Phoenix. We're seeing it now in Florida, but it's also happening in pockets of even the West Coast that are lower supplied. We're seeing it in certain parts of Los Angeles and even Seattle. So typically more high barrier entry markets, lower supply in the big picture, but you still see it in a micro basis where the supply is actually going. And so it's really happening in quite a large number of markets at this point.
1: So what impact is this having on general affordability?
2: What's interesting is we're tracking the rent income ratios of renters coming in, and it's actually been stable, and we're seeing actually rent income ratios come down a little bit. So what's happening is that when these renters are moving up, they're moving up to something they can afford. So it doesn't really change the affordability story at the, in terms of the, what renters pay. What really changes, though, is that as Class C starts to cut rents as a response to all this happening that widens the demand funnel for who can qualify to live in an apartment. And as I'm sure you know, and all the viewers know, is whether you're a mom and pop operator or an institution, everyone's using some version of screening to make sure people can afford the rent that they're actually leasing for, which I think that nuance sometimes gets missed in the headlines. So again, I think the biggest story here is, is the widening de- demand funnel as a result of falling rents and still rising incomes. In fact, incomes have grown faster than rents for the last 13 months. And I think they'll continue to do that this year, which is a great thing, both for renters and and for apartment investors.
1: And Jay, when you say the widening of the demand funnel, explain what you mean by that and explain what the direct impact is.
2: So anytime you have wages growing faster than rents, that means that now there's more people who would qualify to rent that apartment or that single family home. So talk about widening the de- demand funnel. It's just that the potential demand in any given market has widened. As a result, of more people who are qualified to rent, whether the criteria is less than 30% of income or whatever it is, incomes growing faster than rents allows a large number of people to qualify to rent, especially at that lower price point.
1: Right. And when you look at the pipeline right now for these class A luxury apartments, especially in the markets that you specified, what does that look like? And are you concerned, might not be the right word, but are you concerned about when these pipelines dry up, what's going to happen to these rents? Are they just going to level out and how that's going to impact affordability, or is it just going to sort of restabilize to where we've been over the last couple of years?
2: History tells us that supply is always technical. So right now we're seeing this massive surge in supply. Starts have dropped off about 40%, and they'll probably drop off further. Now, supply is not completely going away. There's still going to be some supply, but it is going to be much more limited. And So I think as we go forward, this will peak this year, first half of next year in terms of actual completions, deliveries. But now with fewer starts than completions, by the time we get, second half 25 and 26, there will be substantially less supply. So our view is that, again, there's still be some supply, but assuming the economy is still in good shape, we should start to see a little bit of a return to balance here. We think the demand tailings are still quite strong, so that should lead to reversion to average or slightly above average rent growth maybe mid-single digits in most markets, but certainly nothing like the inflationary period we went to a year or two ago. That's really, I think, more of a a once-in-a-generation event akin to what happened in the 1970s.
1: For those of us who might not know, what happened in the 1970s and how does that mirror what's happening today or not?
2: The 1970s, and especially the mid to late 70s and going into the early 80s, that was really the peak inflation period where we saw a very rapid rise in consumer prices for all things, including rents and home prices and all the other things. And we went through a period of 40 years of very low inflation and very predictable, modest inflation. And even rents had been up and down, but it had been pretty consistently in the low to mid single digit range. And in recessions, it would go slightly negative. And so it had been a fairly tight band. And then we really saw that until the COVID era and getting into especially 21, early 22 where we saw that real spike in both home prices and in rents and a lot of other costs. And so there's a little bit of lag effect in how the CPI tracks rents. But the bottom line is we know peak rent inflation is in the rearview mirror. But again, the only other period that's similar in recent history is that 1970s period.
1: Jay, when you look at the data right now, what are you looking at most closely as we move forward? Obviously, this puts a little bit of context behind what we're seeing today in terms of these oversupplied markets, or at least the markets where their supply is really high. What are you looking for as we move forward? What's the most important indicator for you?
2: That's a good question. So I think it's important to remember everything's about supply and demand. And supply is the easiest thing to forecast. We just look at what's starting. We know it's going to take one to two years to finish, depending on what it is and where it's going. So that's easy, right? We know what's happening there. We know it's going to peak early this year, early next year, and then drop off from there. So demand is really what we're watching. We want to see how much demand is there for these apartments. And so we think there'll be pretty good demand. But some of the early indicators we're looking for, obviously, the job numbers are always important. But one that's really underrated is consumer confidence. There's been a real correlation between housing demand and how consumer confidence, how people feel about the state of the world and their position in it. And for those who watch these numbers, those numbers have been improving dramatically this year, and that's been corresponding to really good apartment demand numbers as well. Now the demand isn't keeping up pace with supply, but those numbers are still quite good and, and above historical norms. And so that's what I'm going to continue to watch. If we see a snag in the economy or the job market or unemployment spikes, all of those things would then cause obviously reduced consumer confidence. And so we want to see a win-win scenario where people continue to get jobs. We want to see wages continue to grow. And we want to see consumers starting to feel better and better about the world. And I think that's going to be really, really important to watch. And hopefully it stays there.
1: I think with all the talk in December about the interest rate cuts that we were going to see in 2024, and then that not happening right away and, and a little bit of uncertainty around that. And then also just this past couple of weeks, we saw an uptick in inflation that I don't think people were expecting. So I think those things are injecting a little bit more anxiety into the climate that I don't think people expected to feel as early as February this year.
2: Hey, look, there's always going to be something to worry about. I see a lot of skeptics about even the job numbers. Hey, these numbers aren't right. And frankly, too, I think it's also important to note there's always pockets of challenge. Even if unemployment is at some of the lowest levels of record, there's still people who are unemployed out there. I and mean, everybody probably knows somebody who's unemployed out there. So that stuff is real. You don't want to downplay that. And you want to help those who are legitimately in need. So there's always going to be a challenge. But I do think by and large, there's been some good articles on this recently. The economy has been in better shape than most people recognize overall. And I think the more people recognize that, that at least the US economy is in stronger shape than is kind of widely perceived that does suggest some upside for housing demand as well. Because ultimately, I think people are more likely to go buy a house or sign a lease if they feel more optimistic about the state of the economy.
1: Yeah, Jay, I want to circle back and talk about affordability a little bit, because obviously with the vacancy rates increasing in the Class B and the Class C communities and those rents coming down a little bit, making it a little bit more affordable, that's obviously a short-term thing. How big of an impact can this filtering trend have on overall affordability, if at all?
2: Oh, I think it has a massive impact, but again, it's limited to where it's actually going. So you look at what's happened already is rent growth was in the 10 to 20% range in a lot of markets at its peak. And now we're seeing these ultra hot markets like Phoenix and, and Austin, smaller places like Boise, where they've gone negative and rents fell last year, they're gonna fall this year. Now, people will point out, it's like they're not back to where they were or they're not lower than before, and that's true. But what we want to see is normalization, of these numbers for everyone to be able to afford to have a place to live, to rent or buy, you'd have to have home prices and rents drop off 50%. And that's going to cause a lot of other issues and no one's going to be building supply anymore. So you don't want to see that big of a correction, which suggests if rents fell that much, that's probably an issue of some broader challenge in the economy and employment's probably going up and whatnot. So let me get back though, to your point though. I think the issue is that it's all about supply, but also I think we need a diversity of supply. It is true that luxury housing ultimately has this filtering effect that benefits lower and moderate income renters. That's not just me saying this. This has been well studied by housing researchers out there. But also at the same time, I'm a big believer in the need for income-restricted low-income housing and also middle-income attainable housing. And so programs like the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit are absolutely paramount. We're also seeing cities get more creative in offering tax abatements, other programs that incentivize development. So there's a carrot and stick approach. So it's essentially we're going to require a subset of these units be income restricted in exchange for reduced taxes and impact fees and whatnot. So it incentivizes development of affordable and attainable housing. And so those things are really, really important parts of the puzzle as well.
0: We'll get back to the show. But first, some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. A 1031 exchange is one of the greatest tools to build your real estate portfolio. But before you sell your next investment property, if you want to save thousands in capital gains taxes, please give our friends at 1031 Pros a call. Whether you're an individual investor, title company, or real estate agent, 1031 Pros is ready to help you or your clients with their 1031 exchange needs. With over 30 years of experience, 1031 Pros specializes in various types of exchanges like delayed, simultaneous, reverse, and improvement exchanges in all 50 states, all while ensuring your transaction is fast. Reliable, transparent, and secure. Ten thirty one Pros has handled over twenty thousand audit free exchanges. And right now, best ever listeners can get two hundred and fifty dollars off any exchange by visiting my ten thirty one pros dot com slash best ever. That's my ten thirty one pros dot com slash best ever to get two hundred fifty dollars off today. Have you heard that Mint, the popular personal finance app, is shutting down? If you use Mint, that's bad news. The good news is that there is an even better alternative. Monarch Money. Monarch gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with others. And now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash ever Most personal finance apps are clunky and cluttered with ads. Monarch is different. Its intuitive design makes setup, customization, and everyday use simple and easy. Monarch is also the most customizable budgeting app available. You can change your dashboard layout, create custom budgets and notifications, and even invite your partner, accountant, or financial advisor to have a joint view of your finances at no extra cost. Once you try Monarch for yourself, you'll understand why it was named 2024's best budgeting app by the Wall Street Journal. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash ever that's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com slash best ever for your extended 30-day free trial.
1: With the historic rent growth that we've seen, Jay, in your opinion, do you think that we've seen rents in general peak?
2: Well, I think rent growth is peak. I don't see how we can get rent growth back to those peak numbers anytime again in our career. I think that's, again, a once in a lifetime event that was resulting from a perfect storm of factors. Now, in terms of the actual nominal rent peaking, the price of everything continues to grow over time. What you want to see is it growing at a more modest and predictable pace. The same thing with home prices. Like if food prices peaked today and they went down you know, every year through the next 20 years, we'd have a food shortage in our country. So you don't necessarily want that. Again, what we want to see is more predictable, sustainable increases over time in line with the Fed's target for 2 to 3% inflation.
1: Jay, our audience is accredited investors, mostly in the multifamily space. So if I'm an investor right now and I'm looking at some of these key markets, whether they are those high supply markets or those ones with more moderate supply, how does information help me? What am I looking for within this data to help me inform my investing decisions, whether that's the geographical market that I want to invest in or choosing which class of apartments I want to invest in?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think a couple of things. Number one, we've seen a lot of issues with investors who came into this market these last few years and had very unrealistic expectations about what is normal. And so I think first and foremost, the best advice is you got to be realistic in what's normal. You can't think that you're going to get 10% rent growth every year just because it happened one year. So be realistic in your expectations. And then at the same time, the other side would tell you is that the data is very clear that when you look at the core demand derivers, job growth, wages, demographics, etc. The overall and just the need for housing, you can work anywhere, you can shop from anywhere, but you need a home. And the, the overall demand for housing is not going away. So there's still a lot of upside in multifamily. I've seen a lot of office capital obviously shifting into multifamily and SFR. So that's not going to change. Now, in terms of markets and whatnot, I'm a big believer in just following the people. And so I think you want to go where the people are going. And there's opportunities everywhere, real estate's local, local, local. So you can be successful with the right strategy in any market. But Broadly speaking, I think you follow the people and I think there's going to be opportunities of all of these asset classes across the board. But I do think that this last cycle is teaching us to be careful about these big value add strategies just because right now we're seeing a lot of people who bought these Class C properties thinking they could turn them into A's, put a lot of capex into it, increase the rent. It's not that it can't work, but that's going to work less and less and less going forward in the short term. So I think it's just, again, being realistic and finding assets that really don't require substantial increase in rents in order to make them pencil out.
1: Jay, what are some questions that I haven't asked that you think investors would be asking about this kind of data right now?
2: The question that I get asked the most right now, other than what you've covered, is really more around distress in the market, both in terms of renter distress and investment distress. And I think that a lot of investors are expecting more of both, and they're really not seeing that yet. And I'm not sure that we will. Renters tend to be more resilient than we've given them credit for them. And we're seeing that owners are being more resilient than expected to be as well. And so lenders are generally working with these borrowers on workouts and restructures and whatnot. There are going to be pockets where we're seeing already some examples of distress and foreclosures and whatnot. But otherwise, there seems to be more stress than distress at this point.
1: What are some of the other questions you're getting the most from investors right now?
2: I get asked a lot about the crystal ball around CPI yeah. and inflation. And I always tell people crystal balls fuzzy and forecasting interest rates is like forecasting gas prices. It's a fool's errand and when rates will go down and those kind of things. Obviously, I think the consensus view is that rates will decrease this year, but they're not going back to where they were a few years back. But I think directionally, though, everyone's looking for that kind of sign of momentum I mean, I think the real takeaway that I have is that investors don't like uncertainty. So what they're really looking for is they want to know that rates have peaked, and that first rate cut, I think, is going to be a big confidence booster for investors.
1: Yeah, I know everyone's waiting on that. There's been a lot of talk on this show about that, and when that day comes, I'm sure there will be a lot of rejoicing. Jay, this current trend that we're discussing today, you talked about what the data that you're looking at most moving forward is regarding that. What about in general? What are the key metrics that you're looking at in the market right now to help you determine the right answers for when people come to you and ask you about that crystal ball?
2: Well, like I said, I look at the demand side metrics first and foremost. I look at you know, things like leasing traffic and guest cards. I look at consumer confidence and obviously jobs, but in terms of other KPIs, the one thing that you could watch closely right now is loss to lease. And many of you probably know, that's the difference of today's market rent versus your average in-place rent of what renters are paying. And that's really interesting because those big loss to lease numbers, which basically meant your current renters are paying substantially less someone comes to the front door. We saw that number being 10% plus a couple of years ago. And that was a big part of the acquisition strategy. And you know, we could buy these properties. There's a lot of upside having big loss to lease. And that's just, again, not the case anymore. Loss to lease has come way back down to the low single digits. So in part, we're also watching renewals. We're finding, I think that in some cases, a lot of investors are wanting to still see renewal rent growth, where it's just not realistic because you're trying to push renewals above your market rent. So your renters go to the website and they say, cost. $1,500 for somebody to move in here new, why are you charging me $1,550? i am a renter in good standing. I pay rent on time every month, but we've heard about a lot of investors. We just want to see positive renewal rent growth, whatever it takes, but that's very short-sighted because you're taking on now more turn costs. It's going to take longer to fill that unit. And so ultimately it's going to impact your revenue and your rent roll values. So those are things I'm watching really closely too.
1: Yeah, I'm sure a lot of these B and C class owner operators have fallen into that trap recently with these decreasing rates?
2: Yeah. Honestly, it's all asset classes. We I mean, see the same thing with class A luxury lease ups where someone offered a two-month concession and they think they could burn it off at the end of the lease term. And they can't because the rents are still lower than what they would be without the concession. So this is an environment right now that's very favorable to renters. The balance of power has shifted to renters. And I think operators and investors need to be very realistic about that reality. But again, things are cyclical. And a couple of years ago, the balance of power is in the favor of operators, and investors, and it's shifted dramatically. And I think if you try to pretend otherwise, it's going to hurt you.
1: Yeah. It sounds like your best ever advice to our listeners would be to be realistic. Yeah. And just <laughs> keep, keep harping on that fact and take the data for what it's telling you, not for what you want it to tell you. Absolutely. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining me today on this, Jay. I uh, really appreciate it. Obviously, a wealth of knowledge when it comes to this data and the trends that we're all looking at as investors in the multifamily space. So uh, is there anything we didn't discuss? That you'd like to touch on before we jump off?
2: No, we covered it. Thanks again for having me on, Paul.
1: Yeah, of course. Hopefully we can do it again soon. And that's our show for today. If you want to read more from Jay on this story, he's posted on Twitter and LinkedIn about it recently. Those links are in the show notes. You can also follow him on LinkedIn and on Twitter at Jay Parsons. In the meantime, as always, thanks, Best Ever listeners. We really appreciate you being a part of the Best Ever community. And remember, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star review. Share it with someone you think could find some value in it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best-ever day.
0: Hi, best-ever listeners. Joe Fairless here again. And one last thing before you go, would you like to receive a short weekly email with proven tips from experienced investors, free tools and resources, and a roundup of the week's most relevant news and best-ever content? Well, if so, join the community of nearly 15,000 commercial real estate passive and active investors who receive the best-ever newsletter Just go to bestevercre.com forward slash access and you'll get the very next one. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, thank you for listening and have a best ever day.